Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into the federal budget, the economy, and how it all impacts our nation's future. This week, a bit of a detour up to New Hampshire as we start 2023. We would normally be about a year away from the uh, next New Hampshire primary, but the National Democratic Party has taken some steps with President Biden's blessing to remove the first in the nation primary from the Granite State and have South Carolina go first followed by New Hampshire and Nevada a week later. So is this the end of the legendary New Hampshire primary and for that matter, the Iowa caucus? The Republicans say not so fast and they are sticking with Iowa and New Hampshire first. Joining us to discuss what this might mean politically uh, for how we pick our presidents and what it might mean for New Hampshire is University of New Hampshire political science professor Dante Scala. Professor Scala is the author of several scholarly works and books on political polarization and the presidential nomination process. Then later in the program, we'll check in with Concord's policy director, Tori Gorman, and chief economist, Steve Robinson, about the latest omnibus spending package for the current fiscal year that Congress and President Biden enacted just before Christmas. Dante Scala, welcome to Facing the Future. Well, thanks very much, Bob. You've been following this stuff uh, for many, many years. And uh, first, I just just wanted you to you, the, the general take, sort of taking off your New Hampshire hat for a minute and just sort of assessing whether it might make sense. And then we'll talk about some of the reasons why, uh, well, some of the attributes of, of New Hampshire and maybe some of the drawbacks. But what did you think when you first heard about this proposal? What surprised me was how forcefully President Biden weighed in on the calendar. He had been on the sidelines for months, really, about changes, even though they were clearly brewing within the Democratic Party as they were deliberating for a good part of a year. But Biden had been silent. And so that left a lot of questions, a bit of a vacuum as far as whether he cared very much at all about the calendar, because obviously it affects him most directly, first and foremost, because he would likely be the candidate running under the new calendar. So, but then he did weigh in and he weighed in quite clearly and with a lot of force behind it to say, hey, this needs to change. I want this state to go first, South Carolina, and here's why. And he articulated a principle that is essentially voters of color are essential to the coalition of the Democratic Party. They've been underrepresented in the primary process to date. That needs to change. Here's how it should change. And that's that. And when that came in, really almost at the last minute before the Democratic Party committee began, you know, deliberating and finally in voting, that struck me as a big change. We don't, it's rarely been the case that incumbents have played such a large role. You can go back to Jimmy Carter wanting to move up some Southern states back in 1980 to shore up his 
renomination bid, but we haven't seen this advocacy from the president for wholesale changes in the process. So that struck me as significant and significantly challenging to New Hampshire's status. Certainly was. The uh, positioning of South Carolina first was a, a statement by the president. One of the things that strikes me is, is, as a question is whether or not the schedule can actually be affected. In other words, states run the primaries and some of these things are guided by state law. And so the DNC can make its wishes known. But if there are state laws that need to be changed in some of those states, and you can talk about New Hampshire state, the unique state law, but some of the states involved here, particularly South Carolina, the key linchpin is, is run by Republicans. And it's I suppose it's not clear that they would willingly change their, their party's date. Yeah, so two things there. I, one with, with South Carolina, the way it works there is, you know, state law is set up so that each of the two major state parties can basically tell the state when it wants to hold its presidential primary. So actually, South Carolina already is set up with a good deal of flexibility in terms of setting up its primaries. And that's true for both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. So South Carolina actually has a lot of leeway. The state that doesn't have a lot of leeway is New Hampshire, as you mentioned, because we have this first in the nation law, right, passed by the state legislature, which essentially orders the Secretary of State, our chief elections official, to hold our event, you know, a full seven days before any similar event. And in the past, that hasn't meant caucuses, right? So the Iowa caucuses could always go ahead of us because they weren't deemed to be a similar event. But in the case of the South Carolina primary, clearly, New Hampshire state law says we should go ahead seven days of any other primary. So on the one hand, the Democrats or the Republicans can't tell New Hampshire when to hold its primary. Where the national parties could affect things is about candidates and the state party and the national party can affect how candidates view the New Hampshire primary, right? Because candidates running for the nomination, they may pay lip service to New Hampshire, but they're really thinking about how New Hampshire fits into their overall calculus of how to win the nomination. And so what national parties can do is bring pressure to bear on candidates and essentially say to candidates, hey, if you go and file in New Hampshire, we will sanction, we will punish you in the following ways. One way that's been tried in the past is to essentially penalize the number of delegates you can win out of a particular state. But that doesn't affect New Hampshire very much because the New Hampshire primary has never been about winning delegates because we have relatively few to give to any candidate. It's really been all about the publicity that a candidate can garner by winning or doing better than expected in the primary. The Democratic Party seems intent, though, on trying other ways of punishing candidates. For instance, if you go and file in the New Hampshire primary, which is out of compliance with the Democratic Party's rules, we won't allow you on the national debate stage. So any party-sanctioned debate let's say that takes place in 2023. You go and file in New Hampshire, you can't participate in our debates. Now, 
not being on the debate stage, that would be a significant penalty in terms of national publicity that you can get by going on, say, MSNBC or CNN and appearing before a national audience. So on the one hand, parties can't tell states when to hold primaries. On the other, parties can bring pressure to bear on candidates, essentially not to go to New Hampshire, to ignore the primary. And then there's a, that's the conundrum for New Hampshire. If you hold a primary and no one shows up, no candidates show up, no media is likely to follow. And if there are no candidates on the ballot and there's no media following it, are voters going to be likely to ignore the primary, pretend it never happened? Yeah, I I was wondering about that effect on New Hampshire. And just briefly before uh, I bring Av into the conversation, it, it it could, in the scenario that you described, turn New Hampshire in into a place for I don't want to say fringe candidates, but 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 people that are more interested in the publicity than the votes, uh, if they can make a splash. Now, is what you're saying is that, you know, you, you, that might get you kicked off the debate stage, which is another calculation that you'd have to make. But it would seem to me that, you know, one of the things you, you think about Gene McCarthy back in the day or, uh, you know, Pat Buchanan, some surprise uh, people that were really making a statement in New Hampshire. And it wasn't so much about the delegates. So, I mean, New Hampshire would still have that function. And of course, it might not matter in 2024 if Biden is the nominee. There might not be. Uh, a, uh, a challenge. And if they were, it would be one of these fringe candidates that was trying to make a statement um, by taking on Biden in New Hampshire. But it, uh, the, it's the longer term effect that will, uh, you know, make for some interesting uh, triangulation and strategizing. Av, do you want to jump in? Sure. And I, I wanted to just uh, put a couple of statements out there, uh, Professor Scala, and, and see, see what you think of it. One, picking up on what Bob just said, I think that for the Democrats, this might not in the big picture actually make that much of a difference because my read on President Biden weighing in so strongly on it is a very clear signal that he intends to run for re-election. And he's, he's said that. He's been pretty consistent about that. Um, and so there's not really going to be a primary on the Democratic side, uh, a really competitive or contested primary on the Democratic side, if that's the case. So it might not make that much of a difference. Um, but and at the same time, the Republicans have indicated that they're sticking with New Hampshire and they're sticking with Iowa. And so might it just be kind of a tempest in a teapot for 2024? Or might we be overreacting by asking about the, the big implications of this? Yes and no. Um, I agree with you about 2024. One, it, it appears clear that Biden intends to run. Now, you know, granted, we're talking about an 80-year-old man and things could change and change in a hurry in terms of his personal health, so forth, right? So we could be looking at a whole different situation in 12 months, but health permitting, right? He intends to run and chances are well, that he wouldn't necessarily face a nomination challenge. You know, things look, I think, less likely after the results of the 2022 midterms. I think if we had seen a Republican wave in November, uh, maybe we'd be talking differently about a primary challenge. But let's assume 
for the sake of argument, Biden runs, doesn't have a significant challenge. You're right. New Hampshire Democrats wouldn't have had a significant contest in 2024 anyway. Where it really could matter, though, is in 2028, right? Which will Biden, no Biden would be an open Democratic primary calendar. And it's strange, right, that, you know, the Democrats are setting up rules now we may not know the effects of until 2028. Like, for instance, consider that we would have in the new calendar basically three events in four days in three very different parts of the country, right? South Carolina, New Hampshire, Nevada. Um, that's a lot closer to having a, not quite, not really a national primary, but it's a much more nationalized race earlier Um and uh, so that that would be a big change. We wouldn't know what the effects of that would be until, you know, close to the end of the decade. Um, I'll mention, by the way, one of my colleagues, Josh Putnam, who runs uh, a website called FHQ, is really good about the, the ins and outs of the nomination calendar. So short term might not matter, but I really think this could indicate a sea change uh, in terms of the Democratic Party's attitude toward New Hampshire. And I think this has been brewing for a while, that there, there's been an increasing outcry that, hey, Iowa and New Hampshire are not diverse enough. We need to diversify the calendar still further. And this, you know, with the backing of the incumbent president, I'm not real optimistic that if the Democrats look at the calendar again between 2024 and 2028, that all of a sudden New Hampshire is going to be back where it once was. Well, that that's a good point. And I this is the, the other statement that uh, I've, I've been thinking about, because I agree with you. I think this has been brewing for some time. And personally, through my own observation, and just, just so you're aware, so I've been uh, watching every Democratic, I mean, not Democratic, but all the New Hampshire primaries since 1984, when I was nine, nine years old. That was my first one. Um, and my observation in the last, I don't know, 20, 25 years of the New Hampshire primaries, more specifically on the Democratic side, is that um, they, they, in a sense, I view them as becoming less and less relevant over the years, the results of those primaries, to what happens in the Democratic Party nomination in the big picture. Because I look at Bill Clinton's performance, uh, Paul Songus won the New Hampshire primary in 92, but Bill Clinton's performance was indicative of some momentum towards Clinton. Um, but after that, since that result, if you look every four years at the results, the results in New Hampshire seem to me, and this is as somebody who grew up here and was a close observer of politics in New Hampshire, they seem to be kind of skewed. Um, uh, for different reasons, either through a personal connection to New Hampshire, a la Hillary Clinton in 2008, or uh, proximity, somebody with great uh, proximity to the state who the voters of the state are very familiar with, a la Bernie Sanders in 2016 and 2020, um, people who did not really reflect the national mood of Democrats and did not really reflect where the party was going. So uh, I wonder if... Uh, if if you share any of the those views that I've just stated, because maybe New Hampshire kind of voted itself out of the uh, you know of of the primary process for Democrats, I would say as an aside that the demographic in New Hampshire I think is very much in line with where the Republican Party is, and you've seen more examples of 
you know, people who've done well in New Hampshire among the Republicans. Um, and, and that's why they don't probably want to switch because demographically it's more in line of where, where the Republicans are. But in terms of the Democrats, has New Hampshire kind of played itself out of this first primary in the nation role? Yeah, you can go back to, um, you know, when was the last time the eventual Democratic nominee won the New Hampshire primary, right? And that was John Kerry back in 2004. You know, you can look at, you know, Al Gore, John Kerry, you know, these were candidates who essentially, I wouldn't say clinched the nomination in New Hampshire, but they certainly strengthened their position uh, after winning the New Hampshire primary. But then, as you say, you know, really things went sideways. You know, we haven't seen the nominee, the Democratic Party party nominee win the New Hampshire primary uh, since 04. And that raises questions about how close the New Hampshire Democrats are to the center of gravity, so to speak, of the National Democratic Party. And arguably, South Carolina is a lot closer to that center of gravity than New Hampshire. And just look at the results, right? New Hampshire, 2008, Hillary Clinton defeats Barack Obama, stops his momentum for a little while, but then South Carolina comes in, votes for Obama, and basically confirms him as the nominee. Go forward eight years, South Carolina, you know, uh, New Hampshire Democrats go for Sanders. South Carolina, again, vetoes New Hampshire, goes with Hillary Clinton. Clinton goes on to win. And the most egregious example, right, is 2020, where New Hampshire Democrats show Biden the door. I mean, fifth place in New Hampshire. I really thought, you know, Biden could finish third in New Hampshire. He'd be okay. But I thought surely fifth place, coupled with his aisle performance, would mean the end. But instead, right, Biden comes back in Nevada, finishes second, and then South Carolina once again becomes the kingmaker. So I think you can make the case. I mean, you can go back a long way and say New Hampshire Democrats don't have a great track record of choosing winners. Um, What I've always thought the value of New Hampshire was is in getting new faces on the national stage who offer dissenting views, whether it's it's Jimmy Carter, Gary Hart, or Bernie Sanders. But, you know, (laughs) it was, you know, it's New Hampshire tried to deliver basically, you know, a body blow to Joe Biden. And then the worst possible thing happened is Biden stood up and just shrugged it off. And then Biden returned the favor to us <laughs> just, yeah. you know, just a few <laughs> weeks ago. I mean, yeah. he rewarded his chief supporters, right, who were very, who were front and center, right, who delivered the nomination. He rewarded them and he punished his opponents here in New Hampshire. Uh, we're going to have to uh, take a short break here, and then we'll come right back uh, with Dante Scala talking more about uh, the New Hampshire primary and the DNC's uh, decision to shake up the schedule. So uh, we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Communications Director of Harris and I are talking with Dante Scala, a professor of political science at the University of New Hampshire, and we're talking about the 
new presidential primary schedule that the Democratic Party at the behest of President Biden has uh, has proposed. You know, one of the things that I appreciate about New Hampshire, and I, I hope we don't miss if we do affect a change, is that it is a small but very politically engaged state, and it's a very purple state. So you get a good mix of Democrats and Republicans and a healthy mix of independents. You get people who are very steeped in the town hall experience, the town meeting experience, and for years of having presidential candidates come through their state. And just reflecting on the experience that we have had at the Concord Coalition, I mean, I, I worked on Paul Songus's presidential campaign in 92 and spent some time in New Hampshire uh, towards the end. But, you know, after we started the Concord Coalition, you better believe in 96 and, uh, you know, 2000 and, and other years since then, we've always had some sort of issue campaign uh, geared to New Hampshire, put special resources into it, had a media strategy. And you can't help but run into candidates. I mean, they're all over the place. And early in the cycle, you really have access to them and can have genuine interaction with them. That to me is is. I'm not saying it can't happen anyplace else, and I'm not saying that they're, you know, forever and ever New Hampshire has to go first. But I do think that, that that's a value. I mean, have you seen that uh, in your own work? Yeah, I think you see, I think there's still evidence of retail politicking happening in New Hampshire. Uh, certainly there are, are a number of groups uh, like the Concord Coalition that definitely try to make an outsized impact in terms of what issues candidates are forced to address uh, in New Hampshire, whether it's, you know, budget deficits or say the opioid crisis. Um, New Hampshire can have its local issues get national attention. And so I think there's definite evidence of that happening you know, over the months and months that before we actually cast votes. That's all true. I do think that one thing that has changed, though, is how nationalized the process becomes, you know, months and months before Iowa and New Hampshire actually vote. Uh, and I think that's not a function of the calendar. That's a function of the national media and uh, financing. And that nowadays it's a lot more difficult for candidates to put a lot of leverage on doing well in New Hampshire than raising a lot of money and running a national campaign. Nowadays, you know, if you're like once upon a time, that would have been someone like Pete Buttigieg, kind of little known person spends a lot of time in New Hampshire, does surprisingly well. All of a sudden, everyone's asking the next day, who's Pete Buttigieg? And then they'd be running this national campaign, but he didn't really do that. Yeah, he spent a lot of time in New Hampshire. However, he raised a lot of money early and he had a national profile early. And that's nowadays, you know, we see it, it's cable TV sees politics as big news. So they run their own town hall meetings. You know, it's not just the Concord Coalition doing that or another issue group in New Hampshire. It's 
you know, Anderson Cooper on CNN running a town hall meeting. It might be in New Hampshire, but it's broadcast to a national audience. So what strikes me is what's changed is nowadays everyone has a front row seat if you're interested, whether you're a voter in New Hampshire or whether you're a voter in Los Angeles, you can watch these candidates and judge for yourself. Whereas back in the day, I think New Hampshire voters had more of a monopoly on the candidates and they were able to judge for themselves and then transmit that judgment to the rest of the country. Whereas nowadays people can form their own judgments a lot earlier. Ah, you got a follow up? Yes, uh, exactly what I was thinking, Professor Scala. And the traditional refrain you hear about the value of the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary is it's, it's, it's really the last place where you can get that face-to-face access to the candidates and the candidates themselves, you know, have to go through this vetting, you know, they, they have to, they have to interact with people in person, um, small setting, you know, house parties or going into, you know, going downtown and hitting all the stores downtown. And I've seen that, you know, I've seen that uh, face-to-face with someone growing up in New Hampshire and as a, as a, as a journalist and covered the 2000 primary pretty heavily. But this is where um, I feel like that has diminished too, uh, piggybacking off of what you were saying. In 2020, we had an eventual uh, Democratic nominee win uh, who ran famously ran the campaign out of his basement uh, in, in President Biden. Now, again, this was a pandemic. President Biden was already older. He was at higher risk. But um, I wonder if that's a trend that was already kind of in the making before the pandemic, because um, you know if you can get on somebody's screen in their own phone, and and you can do that through all the things you said. If you appear on a town meeting nationally televised, or if you're on some podcast or some YouTube channel, um, or the campaign produces material, and you're getting on somebody's screen, is that not almost like replacing the value of that retail campaigning? Because the communal experience of everybody kind of being together, we were seeing that already starting to wane before the pandemic, and it was just accelerated as a result of the pandemic, you know, people are going to less movies together. People are doing less things together anyway. So I just wonder if that value of the in-person retail experience, I mean, you can go back to Hunter Thompson writing about bumping into Richard Nixon in the bathroom in, in 1972, that the value of that has diluted and was already kind of going in that direction anyway. Yeah. Let me just add on to that, that, you know, I mean, it's, it's always, you know, you've seen this, I'm sure it's always been a tug of war between candidates uh, on the one hand, wanting to uh, follow all the norms of retail politicking, but then also trying to game it in some way. You know, it, it could even be as simple as, you know, you have a town hall meeting, but you get you manipulate who gets to answer, gets to ask the questions. Right. So it's it's always been this tug of war about it. Another thing that's changed though, over the past couple of decades is that, you know, when I first started studying the primary, I heard the same thing that you just expressed that there was, you know, candidates started in people's living rooms and then they gradually built bigger and bigger audiences until at the end, 
they were talking to hundreds of people, but they started talking to a couple dozen people in someone's living room. Well, you look at candidates who have been successful over the past couple of decades. I mean, you know, look at Barack Obama. Obama showed up in what, 07. And he was already talking to, you know, hundreds, if not dozens and dozens of people. He was already way past the House Party stage. Hillary Clinton was way past the House Party stage. Look at Donald Trump. I mean, that always comes back to me. I thought, well, surely sooner or later, voters will vet Donald Trump and they will punish him for basically not answering people's questions, for only doing rallies. That won't provide much of a foundation for his eventual support. That was wrong. People, Trump did rallies. He didn't do town hall meetings. And that was perfectly fine with a large section of Republican voters. Bernie Sanders, right? He didn't do a lot of town hall meetings. He was, so a lot of these, again, it all gets back to this nationalization thing. These candidates come here, a lot of them, not everybody. I mean, there was a lot of retail politicking in 2020. And Biden did some of it. Um, he showed up here. I, I went to a town hall meeting in Peterborough, I think, and saw him answer questions. However, one thing that's changed is candidates leap beyond that, that stage pretty early. And again, that raises questions about how much retail politicking is actually you know, going on that's really meaningful, given that you have these well-known candidates who already have a lot of name ID. Yeah, I think that the, uh, you know, the concern would be with South Carolina up front and then the two big states, Georgia and Michigan, coming right behind that, you know, Nevada and New Hampshire would be sort of getting a pass as, um, you know, honoring past services <laughs> to the party or a forum for candidates that want to make a breakthrough, you know, that can't afford to compete right away in a state like Georgia or Michigan and, and you know, would want to you know, have no other choice but to go that retail politic route that you might be able to do in the smaller states. And that might be the the fate. So I, I don't know, you know, it, 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 the, the funding that re is required for modern campaigns may further diminish uh, Nevada and, and New Hampshire in this setup. New Hampshire will go ahead of other states, but if the calendar operated the way they wanted it to, again, if you were a candidate, you look at South Carolina, Nevada, New Hampshire, you might be very happy to concentrate. You might adopt a two out of three strategy. Like, okay, got to go to South Carolina because they're first, but Nevada, maybe they're going to think Nevada or New Hampshire, right? Rather than Nevada and New Hampshire, especially if they were both held on the same day, you might say, okay, I need to concentrate my resources someplace. I mean, including the yeah. candidate's time, right? You know, I can only be in one place at one time. So where do I focus my attention? That, that could be what happened if, in fact, the calendar worked the way it would. You know, one thing, um, we're going to have to wrap this up in a minute, but we've been talking about the Democratic side. One thing that could be super, super interesting in 2024 is the Republican primary in New Hampshire, because it will really be a if if Trump goes through with his campaign and somebody challenges him, uh, that that would be a real big test of whether or not he still has his magic uh, in the field in a very independent state. And uh, so I will be 
even if the Democratic side is boring, I think we'll still be looking for New Hampshire to uh, send an important signal in the, in the Republican primary. All agreed. I think it's business as usual for New Hampshire Republicans, right? I mean, they're, I mean, Governor Sununu is not going to change the first in the nation law. And New Hampshire Republicans are perfectly happy going behind Iowa. And national Republicans are happy with that, too. And I agree, it does set up an interesting rematch for Donald Trump, because as you remember, New Hampshire really delivered for Trump when Iowa rejected him. And so it'll be interesting to see, say, a DeSantis versus Trump matchup here could be decisive. Okay, well, we thank Dante Scholar, uh, political science professor at the University of New Hampshire. Av Harris, uh, thank you for your insights and questions and joining me today. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Uh, This is Facing the Future, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And I'm joined by Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson. In this section, we're going to talk about uh, the omnibus bill that passed just before the House uh, and the Senate uh, adjourned for the break. And um, we called it uh, Omniboom. Omniboom! Omniboom, yeah, it was big. It was uh, very, very big. Part of the reason for that is just because they hadn't passed any of the appropriation bills all year. And so what they were doing was funding the entire federal government uh, in one big bill. When I say that, that's all the agencies, all the 12 bills that they should have funded, which is amounts to about 30 percent of the federal budget, the rest of it running on autopilot. Um, so let's get into a little bit about the Omni boom. We didn't have a whole lot of details when it uh, when it passed, but. Tori, you looked at it pretty closely in terms of the levels and certainly the relatively ugly process it took to get to, to get past. The devil's always in the details, right? When you when you look at the top line, the the omnibus bill provides a grand total of about one point seven trillion dollars in discretionary appropriations for fiscal year 2023, which is already underway. We're already, what, three months into into yeah. 2023. So, okay. So that's good. We've got the, 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 we've got fiscal 23 funded. Yay. Woo. Um, and the, the increase over last year on a purely top line basis is, is 0.7%, less than 1%. And when you're looking at 7% inflation, 6% inflation, depending upon what your number is and what statistic you look at, that's, that's not such a bad deal. Um, but when you sort of peel back the layers, uh, you think of it like an onion and you look at some of the details underneath, um, it's actually kind of scary because uh, when you take away all of the emergency and COVID spending that really sort of jacked up spending in 2022, and you take that away in 2023, well, that's why it looks like we're not spending a lot of money. When you look at the base discretionary spending levels, and these are the levels that get built into the discretionary spending baseline every year going forward, and this is by which we measure future potential deficits, future potential debt, um, there were huge increases in in base, meaning non-emergency spending. Um, On the defense side, 9.7% increase in defense spending. Now, I acknowledge that there's a lot of things going on in defense-related world. Number one, their, their, their you know, number one expense 
uh, in the defense budget is fuel um, and gas prices. Diesel prices have not been kind this year, but they are on their way down. But still, you know, inflation of 7%, they got a 9.7% increase in the, in the defense budget. I think part of that was to backfill um, what we're sending to Ukraine. Obviously, we need to backfill our own supplies here. But still, 9.7% is huge. And, you know, while I haven't, you know, really dived into any of the details yet, you, you got to think that there are things in there, whether it's ships, planes, helicopters, um, things like that, 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 you know, the military doesn't need, but Congress decided to give them anyway, submarines, et cetera. Um, so, so that's a concern. Um, on the non-defense side, um, you know, just the, 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 sort of a family-based, if you will, side of, of the social spending side of discretionary spending, you know, that was an 8% increase, you know, on top of all the COVID money that we spent, that we distributed last year and all these statistics that say that Americans, the reason why we're continuing to spend despite all this inflation is they're really, really flush from all this COVID money last year. We still put a honking amount of money into the non-defense discretionary budget, uh, 8% increase over the year before. And a lot of that wasn't really based on need. It was based on a political argument between Republicans and Democrats. You know, they have this, this, this insistence that whatever increase there is in non-defense or in defense, there has to be a parallel increase in non-defense or defense. So Democrats were insisting that, yeah, okay, we agree the defense budget needs a 9.7% increase, but then we also want, you know, the defense, the non-defense side to have a 9%. And, and there was no, there's no rationale for it. There's no policy rationale for it. There's no need. Okay. It's a want. All right. There's no distinguishing between needs or wants in this. Um, it's called it just like, it's fairness or parity. I mean, it's like I, I understand what you're saying. It's just kind of like this, you know, knee jerk re reaction that well, defense gets more than everything else has to get more. Well, it's it's the this this whole childish mindset that if you're winning, I must be losing, and I don't want to lose, so I'm gonna, you know, I want mine too. Uh, and and unfortunately, the people that it impacts are, you know, those of us that actually pay. Federal income taxes. And, and actually, everybody's been getting a lot. Both sides have been getting a lot because of the backfilling on the war, as you said, on Ukraine. And so there's and, and then the, uh, you know, all the stimulus from the uh, COVID fighting is so, I mean, both sides have been getting a lot of money aside from the right. regular budget. Right. And I think the thing that's really disappointing to me is we've got a lot of members of Congress, especially Republicans who are just running for office and are newly uh, the, the narrow majority in the House running around screaming inflation, inflation, inflation. Well, if that's the case, it would be really helpful if monetary policy and fiscal policy would work in conjunction with one another rather than in opposition to each other. The Federal Reserve for months now has been trying to raise rates to help reduce inflation. Fiscal policy, federal government doesn't help when they pass appropriations bills that spend, you know, gargantuan amounts of money. You know, a little bit of restraint, a lot more restraint, actually, would have been beneficial in this this omnibus legislation. And so, sadly, that was almost completely absent. Um, the one piece of restraint that I I acknowledge and and 
actually surprised the heck out of me is there wasn't a big, huge tax title in this omnibus. You know, usually all these little pieces of of tax legislation, you know, small sort of niche uh, tax benefits that benefit, you know, very, very small industries, possibly even, you know, one or two employers, stuff that's expiring at the end of the year or has already expired. Those always get jammed in at the end of the, of the year. And if there is an omnibus bill and, and, and that title, that tax title was missing this year. There wasn't anything on business tax extenders. There wasn't anything, anything on, you know, the child tax credit and, and, you know, the, the, the renewal of that, uh, the renewed expansion of that, I should say. Um, so I was, I was kind of impressed that at least in that one respect, there were some retirement, uh, tax provisions, um, which wasn't happy about those either, but okay. But at least it wasn't this gargantuan, you know, gaping maw of unoffset tax extenders. Steve, um, going back a little bit further, uh, one of the bits of unfinished business for us, I think, uh, in the the year end, uh, I don't think we had a chance to comment on this program about the latest economic numbers. There was some good news, some slowing of inflation, and the Fed seemed to be slowing its rate hikes uh, at the end of the year, leaving us wondering, you know, has inflation really peaked and uh, and what path forward for the Fed? I mean, I know a lot of people are saying, well, you know, a recession is inevitable in 2003 and, and others insist that it isn't and we'll, we'll know as we go forward. But, you know, are we at an inflection point or are things likely to just sort of muddle along as they have been? Well, cl- clearly, we've seen an inflection. I mean, you go back to earlier, you know, in the spring and summer of last year, inflation was running, you know, eight and nine percent. I think that was the peak is about nine. And the last indicators we saw, um, you know, November, December, I guess we haven't gotten December numbers yet, but November, uh, you know, was down to seven. So, yeah, w- from that measure, inflation has peaked. Um you know the Fed has suggested they're going to 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 take their foot off. Well, they're going they're going to slightly ease up on the break. I mean, they were raising interest rates at three quarters of a percentage point, and the last increase was only a half a percentage point. So you know there's an inflection both in terms of of the interest uh, changes by the Fed and an inflection in terms of the CPI. But you know anybody who watches economic data knows that just because the numbers go in one direction one time doesn't mean they're going to keep going in that direction. I mean, you know, we've, we've watched the stock market <laughs> bounce up and down all, all, all year last year. And, you know, the fact that the markets think the Fed is done raising rates and it's just a question of, or not, they're not done. They're done aggressively raising rates at the rate they were. That doesn't mean the Fed can't or won't reverse course, nor does it mean that the Fed won't keep rates higher longer than what the markets expect right now. I mean, I'm still amazed. I mean, we, we have uh, one, of, one of the largest inverted yield curves as we've had in a long time. I mean, you look at short-term rates, whether you're talking about the two-year rate or the three-month uh, bill note rate, you know, those are all above the 10-year rate. And normally that is a strong indicator of, 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 an, of a coming recession. And you know, a lot of the financial press is talking about, you know, 2023, we're going to have a recession. But 
The stock market doesn't act like it. The long-term interest rates don't act like it. So, you know, there's a lot of mixed signals out there. And so, you know, I, I don't, you know, we're going to have to muddle through several more months to get clarity on, you know, whether we really have turned the corner on inflation or whether this is a pause and, you know, things are going to reverse and or the Fed is going to have to keep things longer than the market, higher, longer than the market expects. And, you know, whether that'll ultimately trigger a, a slowdown and, you know, it could be a very it, mild recession, but, you know, it's yeah, I mean, to, it's a politically fraught situation because growth, I mean, it, growth isn't great, but but job growth is great and yeah. uh, wage growth is. And the downside of that, which would normally be great news, is that that doesn't help with the inflation question. And so, um, you know, the the good news isn't necessarily good news when you uh, think about it that way, because the Fed may keep its foot on the brake longer. And I guess that's why people are talking about uh, potential recession. But that's going to increasingly that's going to be a difficult political conundrum. We'll see. But that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, this is your host, Bob Bixby. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. Facing the Future.